Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and it is Holy Week. And some traditions celebrate Holy Week, others don't. It's just a reminder for us to get our hearts ready for Easter. And so between Palm Sunday last weekend and Easter Sunday this upcoming weekend, uh, many church traditions celebrate certain instances or certain events in the last week of the life of Christ. And so today is Maundy Thursday. Now, of the Holy Week activities, Maundy Thursday may be one of the least well-known. Good Friday, of course, celebrates the death of Christ on the cross. But Maundy Thursday celebrates the institution of the Lord's Supper, or Communion, the last supper Jesus had with his disciples. Now, you may be asking, why is it called Maundy Thursday? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. We spell this M-A-U-N-D-Y, although sometimes we say Monday Thursday or Maundy Thursday to make those words line up. But Maundy Thursday is actually a word that comes from the Latin, from the Vulgate translation of John 13, 34, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. And the word for commandment is the Latin word mandatum. And so over time, it's been translated over into English as Maundy Thursday. And we celebrate on Maundy Thursday the new commandment that Jesus gives his disciples, which is to love one another. We remember the meal they shared together, the new institution of communion, Jesus saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which will be shed for you as a new covenant. And I thought it would be great this year to celebrate Maundy Thursday with probably my favorite thing that we do each year, and that is listen to my dad, Terry Fakes' communion message. Now, he would never say this, but I think this is one of those sermons that it it needs to be spread as far and as wide as it can. It's one that, although he's taught it, and I probably have heard it 10 times, and he's taught it more than that, you learn something new from it every time. So this is a sermon that, whether you've heard it before or you've never heard it, I think you'll be really impacted by it, especially as you turn your heart towards Easter this Holy Week. So what is this message? Well, this is a message that basically ties your whole Bible together, starting with the communion story, moving back into the Exodus and the Passover, moving back into the covenant with Abraham, talking about the Jewish wedding festivals. This is a sermon that you'll never read your Bible the same way again, uh, because there are just so many threads that run through it. And so this is a recording of that sermon from last year. If you want to watch this live or if you want to attend it live, if you're in Oklahoma City, just go to Crossings Community Church uh, at 12 or at 6. Or you can stream it online from previous years on their website. So I wanted to give a little introduction here so that you know what, what this is like. But I also wanted to remind you the best thing we can do during Holy Week is not just go to services and not just celebrate, but actually spend time, stop, pause, turn your phone off. Get alone and spend some time with God, praying, thanking Him for the resurrection, remembering that our faith is based not just on a set of historical events, but on a risen Savior. So with that in mind, here is the communion message for Maundy Thursday. It was a Thursday night when Jesus and His disciples gathered in that upper room. But to understand what they were doing there, We need to go back even farther into history. In fact, 2,000 years before that night. And we need to go to the land that is today called Iraq. And there was a man there named Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to leave this land 
and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham, he said, I will make you into a great nation of people, and I will give you a land for your descendants to live. And Abraham, in a way that you cannot understand, I will bless all of the nations of the earth through you. And the scripture said Abraham trusted God. He believed God, and he did as God asked. And he took his wife, Sarah, and he moved to the land of Israel. And after he had lived there for many years, the word of the Lord came to him again, and it said, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. I shall make you into a great nation. And Abraham said, but Lord, my wife Sarah and I have no children. The heir in my household will be someone not related to me. And the Lord took him outside and had him look at the stars in the sky. And he said, Abraham, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Abraham said, but O oh Lord, how can I know that this will happen? And then God answered his question in a very unusual way. He said, Abraham, get a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, and a pigeon and a young dove. Well, that's a curious way to answer his question, but what's even more curious is that Abraham knew what to do. He did indeed get a heifer, a goat, and a ram, three years old, and a pigeon and a young dove, and he took them to a place where the land kind of sloped down together and made kind of a natural trough. And the scripture says he cut those animals in two from nose to tail. He literally cut them in half, and he laid the halves of the carcasses out and the blood ran down into the trough. Well, he knew to do this because in those times, it was very common when two kings would make a covenant or a treaty, two nations, that the kings would come together and they would take the animals and they would cut them in two and lay them out just as Abraham had done. And then the stronger of the two kings, the greater of the two kings, would walk in between those animals and the blood would splash up on his robes. And it was as if to say, if I do not keep this treaty, this covenant, this is what you can do to me. It was a blood covenant and each pledged their lives to keep this treaty. Well, that's what God had asked Abraham to do. Abraham said, how can I know? And God, he realized, was willing to make a covenant with him. The scripture said after he cut the animals in two and laid them out, he sat down to wait. And as he waited, it says a deep and dreadful darkness came over him. Well, let me translate that. He became scared to death. The more he thought about this, he realized that if God made a covenant with him, God would uphold his part of the covenant. But Abraham wondered, could he and his descendants uphold their part of the covenant? You see, in Genesis chapter 17, we read this. God said to Abraham, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Well, what did he mean? He meant, I am your God. Trust me and do what I tell you to do. And Abraham had he had been faithful. He'd been righteous. He did, by faith, he acted on what God told him to do. But he wondered, could his descendants be faithful to their part of the covenant? 
Well, as he sat there, it said that the word of the Lord came to him in the darkness. And he said, Abraham, I will surely make you into a great nation. And in this land I have brought you is where your people shall dwell. And you truly will be a blessing to all the nations on this earth. But Abraham, your descendants will become slaves in a land not their own. And they'll be enslaved for 400 years. But at the end of that time, I will deliver them. And I will bring them to this land that I have promised you. And the scripture says that as he sat there, he saw a torch and a smoking fire pot move between those animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Well, as time went on, you probably know the story. Abraham was faithful, and God was faithful to him. He and Sarah had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob, and Jacob had... 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and became a great nation, just as God had promised him. But although Abraham was faithful to God, his descendants were not. And through the generations, they began to go after other gods. They broke faith with the covenant with God, and their lives were forfeit. Yet just as God had said, they found themselves, after a drought in the land of Israel, in Egypt, and they fled there as a refuge, and as so often happens, the refuge turned into a prison. And they became slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years in bitter slavery. And while the Israelites had been unfaithful to the covenant, nevertheless, God was still faithful. He did what he said he would do, and he sent a deliverer. And so a man named Moses came, sent from God, and he came to the Israelites and he looked on the bitterness of their suffering and their slavery, and he approached Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and he said to Pharaoh, he said, my God says, let these people go so that I may take them to the land that I promised their forefather, Abraham. Well, Pharaoh said, I do not know your God, and I will not let these people go. And so there ensued a series of judgments. Sometimes in the Bible we call them these plagues upon Egypt, but they were judgments on Egypt's gods. The Nile turned to blood and hail and fire rained from the sky, and still Pharaoh hardened his heart and he said, I will not let this people go until the tenth and final judgment. God spoke to Moses and he said, go to Pharaoh and say this, God will pass through the land of Egypt, and when he does, the firstborn of every household will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who works at her loom. He spoke so to Pharaoh, and he left, and God said, go to the Israelites and tell them this. And he spoke to the Israelites, and he said, God is going to pass through Egypt and he will kill the firstborn of every household. He said, but as for you, as a memorial to God's faithfulness, from now on, this will be the first month of your year. And on the 10th day of that first month, each household will select a lamb, one year old, without blemish, and you'll take that lamb into your home, and you'll care for that lamb 
until the 14th day of the month. And at twilight on the 14th day, all of you will slaughter the lambs. And you'll take some of the blood of that lamb and you will paint it on the doorposts of your houses. Because when the Lord passes through Egypt, when he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house, he will pass over your home. He said, then you're to roast that lamb and eat it, but eat it in haste. Eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on and your staff in your hand because you will leave Egypt that day. He said, also eat it with bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of the slavery that you've experienced. Well, the Israelites did as Moses commanded them. And just as the Lord had said, God passed through the land of Egypt and the firstborn in every household died. The scripture said when they awoke that next morning, there was not a household in Egypt that didn't have someone dead. From the household of Pharaoh to the household of the prisoner in the dungeon. And the scripture says there was a weeping and a crying in Egypt such as has never been heard before nor will ever be heard again. But in the camp of the Israelites, where the blood of the lamb was painted on their doorposts, it said not even a dog barked. The Lord had passed over their homes. Well, Pharaoh relented and he said to Moses, go, take these people. And so he did. And just as God had promised Abraham those centuries before, he led the people out of Egypt and out of slavery, and they began to head toward the journey, toward the land that was promised to Abraham, the promised land of Israel. But there was a problem. You see, God had been faithful to this covenant in every detail, but the Israelites had not, and their lives were forfeit. There was a death sentence on them because they had been faithless to God and faithless to the covenant. And so God instituted through Moses a way to postpone the debt that was owed. And so he gave Moses the law, and in the law, periodically the people would offer animals as sacrifices. The blood of the animal couldn't pay their debt, but it postponed the debt of their sin. And so throughout the centuries, whether at the tabernacle in the desert or later at the temple that Solomon built, they would bring sin offerings and they would offer the animal as though it were the guilty party and they would slay the animals and sacrifice them. And so throughout the centuries, they postponed the debt that was owed on that covenant. But God instituted one other thing. He told Moses every year, on the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. On that one day, the whole nation will fast and pray and you will all come together. And the high priest will select a goat and he will purify this and he'll bring the goat out in the midst of all the people and he'll lay his hand on the head of the goat and he will confess the sins of the nation. He will confess the unfaithfulness of the people. And it's as though he transferred the sins of the people, if you will, to this, the head of this goat. It's where we get our word scapegoat. And then some men would take that goat outside the camp, outside of the city, because it bore the sins of all the people. 
And they would take this goat alone out into the wilderness and they would run him off a cliff and he would die. He would die bearing the sins of all the people. And so year after year and century after century, they would observe the sacrifices to postpone the death. And every year they would observe the Passover meal to remember when God was faithful and he passed over the Israelites when he brought them out of slavery. And so 1,400 years later, on that Thursday night, it was Passover, and Jesus and his disciples were gathered to eat the lamb. The lamb had been slain, it had been roasted, and they were there to remember God's faithfulness. It had been a really busy week in Jerusalem. You see, Passover was one of the festivals where every Jew who was able was supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. There were 100,000 extra Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. There were so many Jews there that the Romans brought in extra soldiers, and the governor, the Roman governor himself, would come to Jerusalem and stay there so that nothing could happen with all of these Jews in one place to keep the peace, if you will. The Sunday before that Thursday night, Jesus had come riding in from the Mount of Olives on a donkey, and he'd come riding in to the city of Jerusalem. All these thousands of Jews were there. They heard he was coming, and so they grabbed palm branches, which for them was a sign of royalty, and they came out to line the way, and they began to wave the palm branches and lay them down in front of his path as if it's the coming of the king and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, deliver us. And in fact, Jesus had come to save them, but not in the sense that they thought. They had hoped for a king like David who would come and throw off their oppressors, the Romans. And Jesus had indeed come to throw off the great oppressor. But as he rode in that day, you need to know this. That Sunday, which we call Palm Sunday, was the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish year. It was Lamb Selection Day. And all of those Jewish families were selecting their one-year-old lamb to take home and care for. And so as Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, he literally is God's chosen lamb. For all the Israelites choosing their lambs, God had chosen his lamb. You know, that explains something that had happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist and a couple of his disciples were standing in a village, and Jesus came walking into the village. And John the Baptist says something really odd. He said, look there, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that's a really curious thing to say. It's kind of out of context. I mean, I would guess he might say, there's Jesus, the one I've been telling you about, or there's Jesus, he's the Messiah. But instead he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day, he was indeed God's chosen Lamb. Well, the following Thursday was the 14th day 
of the first month, and Jesus and his disciples were gathered to eat the Passover meal. Well, they had done it exactly as it was commanded 1,400 years ago by Moses, but over time they added tradition, good traditions, traditions to remember what God had done, to remember God's faithfulness to keep his promises even when the Israelites had not. And in fact, the Passover meal, called a Seder, was kind of structured. You would eat the roast lamb, they would eat the bitter herbs, and they'd added some more foods. But there were four cups of wine, and there were prayers that went with each cup. One before dinner, one after dinner. Well, the cup after dinner is called the cup of redemption. And Jesus leading this Passover meal, after dinner, the scripture says, he got up and he took the cup and he said, Drink each one of you from this cup. This is a new covenant in my blood. Well, that's a shocking thing. I mean, they've all been at Passover seders since they were little boys, and that's not the prayer you pray. That's not what you say. I mean, he'd broken the Passover tradition. And in fact, what he was doing seemed eerily familiar to them. You see, in those days when a young man, and they were all familiar with this, wanted to marry a young woman, well, the father of the would-be groom would go speak to the father of the bride. And they would bargain, and they would settle on a bride price. Father of the bride would ask for as high a price as he could get, and not necessarily because he was greedy, but because of the great value that he placed on his daughter. And if they agreed on that price, they would bring the young man and the young woman together and they would pour a cup of wine. And the young man would take this cup and he would drink from the cup and he would say, I love you. I want to marry you. This is a betrothal. I love you and I will commit my life to you. Well, contrary to popular belief, even though there was obviously then as now a lot of pressure to do what your parents wanted, but he would pass the cup to the young woman and she could drink from that cup and say, I love you and I will commit my life to you. Or she could pass the cup. Well, this is what it kind of looked like Jesus was doing. Drink every one of you from this cup. This is a new covenant. This is a new marriage. This is a new arrangement brought about by my blood. And it, it seems shocking to them. But you know, that explains what happened later. You see, when they had finished that meal, they went to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus was just troubled in his spirit, knowing what was coming, and he asked them to pray with him, and he went a little farther, and he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and do you remember what he prayed? He said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass me by. What did he mean by that? I mean, he could have said, Father, please find another way besides the cross that's in my future. Is there some other way to get rid of this death sentence except the cross? But instead, he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass me by. Well, of course, he's going to be drinking the cup of justice, the cup of God's wrath poured out on all of the Israelites and all of us who have been unfaithful to God. But in a sense, he's drinking 
the cup of betrothal. You see, when that young man drank that cup and said, I commit my life to you, he didn't necessarily expect that he would literally be called on to give his life for the bride. But Jesus knew that if he drank that cup, he would be called on to give his life that very day. And so he prayed, Father, if there is any other way. But there was no other way. Well, there was no other way, and so he drank. He drank from the cup of sorrows. And at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, they nailed him to a cross. They took him outside the city, nailed him to a cross on one of the roads that came into the main gate. And you see, there were so many Jews in town for the Passover, but on this Friday, they were streaming into the city because that evening at sundown on Friday would begin the Sabbath. It wasn't permitted to prepare food on the Sabbath, and so everybody came in to get extra provisions for the next day, for the Sabbath, and as they filed past, they would see him nailed to the cross. The Scripture says that at noon, darkness came over the entire land. And all those thousands of people looked around and the wind came up and the rocks split. There was an earthquake and the people were terrified. What is happening? What is this darkness? And just as this covenant began in a deep and dreadful darkness, suppose it's only fitting that it ends in darkness. And in that time, the people were crying out. They wondered, what is happening? What's going on? Something cataclysmic is happening. And in the midst of that, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you left me all alone? Now they knew, and I suspect many of you do too, that's the first line of the 22nd Psalm. It's a psalm written by King David 900 years before that day. And when he quoted that verse, it's like a song, and you hear the first line of the song and all the rest of the lyrics come flooding into your mind because, you see, they had recited and sung that psalm all their lives. And when he quotes that first verse, the rest of it comes back to them. And here's what it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my clothing, and they divide my garments among themselves. All who pass by and see me mock me. They shake their heads at me and they say, if God wants him, let God save him. It says this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and it melts within my breast. My strength is dried up like pottery and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. O oh Lord, you have laid me in the dust of death. And as they saw and heard that psalm from so many centuries before, they literally saw it happening in front of their very eyes. They saw the prophecy come true. 
and the sacrifice of this man on a cross. But in another sense, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face away because you see Jesus, the scapegoat, killed outside the city, bore the sins of all of Israel. Not a sacrifice that postponed the debt, but the perfect sacrifice that could repay the debt. And he bore the sins of all of the Israelites, all who've been faithless, you and me, and God turns his face away. And the scripture says from noon until three o'clock, it was dark in all the land. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out, it is finished, and he died. Three o'clock was the time of the sacrifice in the temple. And up on the very corner of the very top of the temple, a priest would blow the shofar, the ram's horn, and it could be heard far and wide to let people know it's time for the sin offerings. It's time for the afternoon sacrifice. And at that moment, Jesus died. And in a sense, when he said it is finished, I mean, I used to think that his ministry was done, what he had been sent to do to say, repent, the kingdom of God is coming. And he'd done it. He'd been faithful to do that. And maybe in a more poignant sense, he was saying it's finished. And this agony, this agonizing death is done. But in a much, much bigger sense, when he said it is finished, he meant the covenant, the death sentence that hung over all of unfaithful mankind was paid. No more postponement. He had paid the covenant, and he had created a new covenant in his blood. Finally, after all the centuries, the debt was paid, and we were spared. When we take communion, when we reenact the Last Supper, we remember the cosmic nature of what God has done. This is the epic story of God's love. This is God knowing that you and I could never escape the sentence of death that we had. We could never repay the debt. And yet he made it so that he himself paid the debt for us. He closed that covenant with the justice that it required by the blood of his own son. But even more, even more intimately, you see, when we take that cup, every time we do this, we remember God's faithfulness. And I hope that you will always now remember what God has done. But in a very personal sense, when he offers the cup, he drank that cup. And he said, I love you, and I will give my life for you. And when we take the cup, we can pass. Or we can drink the cup and say, I love you, and I will give my life to you. That's what communion is about. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, take and eat, for this is my body, which is for you.
And when dinner was finished, he took the cup and he said, drink each one of you from this cup. This is a new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, as we think about what you have done through all these centuries and all these millennia, who are we that you loved us so much that while you were faithful and we were not, and yet you would pay our debt, you would save us from a just sentence. Father, I thank you that you had the perfect lamb of sacrifice. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And as we take this bread and this cup, we remember your faithfulness. We remember the whole story of what you have done. And Father, we commit that we give our lives to you. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In his blessed name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.